Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the entire first season of His Dark Materials. We're also going to be answering all of the emails, tweets, etc. that we've gotten uh, during the course of the show and use that to help make our way through the first season. So, usually we talk about our general feelings of whatever episode we just watched. So, what were our general feelings overall of the season? Anya, do you want to go first since you didn't leave any notes? (laughs) (laughs) That's just evil. (laughs) I specifically requested to go last. I thought I would have this time to get my shit together. Uh, I am joking. Somebody else can go first. Uh, I really liked this as like, I just rewatched it over the, like the last couple of days. And while I was rewatching it, you know, now that we know like everywhere that it was going and stuff, I really see this as more of an adaptation of the first act of a trilogy instead of an adaptation of the first book, which is a little bit different, I think. And I enjoyed it a little bit more seeing it that way. I I do wish that we got more than eight episodes. I kind of wish there had been, you know, 10, 16 episodes to let the like, to just let everything breathe more like the when whenever they took the time to like explore the space a little bit, I feel like that's where the show was really at its best. Um, but obviously, they don't, you know, have the budget for that kind of stuff. And I wish that the budget had been bigger you know, to more demons, to make more distinctions between the worlds and stuff like that. Um, And also to like pay for some more writers. Because even though I think Jack Thorne like did an amazing job adapting, you know, that this first part of the trilogy, and he's like such a good writer, I feel like he's in touch with some of the characters more than others. And like, I can't help but think that like part of the reason why we enjoyed Mrs. Coulter so much, not only because of like the amazing Ruth Wilson, but because he seems to be tapped into that character, but he doesn't seem to be tapped into, say, Roger, you know, or, you know, some of the other characters that we just weren't feeling the vibe of. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, don't know. I th- we got called out pretty intensely on Twitter for not liking Roger. I, well, it's not even that I didn't like him. It was just like, I don't know, like he's just not... I would. I want all the characters to hit the way that Miss Coulter is hitting. You know why not? And I think having more writers in the room it allows you to do that. That was pretty much how I felt about the season too. Like I really liked it, but I do think it would have benefited from more of a writers' room so that they had some they had people to bounce ideas off of and that sort of thing. Like I really really loved the first three or so episodes, and I love that they brought Will in early and his story just so that it gives us a really good starting place for season two. I know in the 
in the second book, you get like three chapters where you just have no idea where Lyra is. Like she's just, you're just completely with Will. And I, the whole time I remember reading that book, I was like, where the fuck is Lyra? (laughs) So I like that we just skip over that. And I, I do think, but I think the creators got bogged down in the second half of the series with worrying about how to do what they had to do within budget. When we've seen time and time again that money and special effects aren't what make things successful. It's writing and acting and directing. And as somebody who went to school for theater, I know that you can have huge emotional impacts on people if you if you get them to buy into it. You know, you don't need the special effects. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I really, I, I did really like this adaptation of the actual story of His Dark Materials as kind of a, a thing. It, did, it definitely took things in a subtly different direction from where the books took it and also where the failed attempt at a film tried to vaguely do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it definitely provided a bit more depth to the, to the story in general. You got to see a little bit more. You got to see what Boreal was doing in the times when you don't see that in the books. I loved that as an addition. I thought that was a really clever mm-hmm. like, extra place where they could expand and they expanded whilst it still felt like it was in universe. Um, I would I would have enjoyed to see... I, w- I, would have, I would have enjoyed seeing a lot more kind of variance in the demons themselves. We definitely talked about that when I was on, on episode four. The, it felt a little bit stark for that but i do think that that's definitely partially a budget thing and especially as a pilot season this is a this was truly a really good one just as a little point on the um on the length of it i think that's partially to do with the fact that it's a bbc series so and i think that's more generally british series versus american series where we don't really do the sort of 30 episode season we you'll see maybe i mean take a look at sherlock that's like three or four episodes a season sometimes these are these very short quite punchy uh like sets of episodes followed by long breaks is more in that tradition i don't quite know where that came from i'm sure someone on twitter could enlighten us to the history of it but i I think that that probably came from there rather than necessarily uh a money issue Mm -hmm. but maybe to be fair sherlock's not a good uh, example because each of those episodes was like two hours that's true that's like each true, episode but... was a movie yeah but i mean even these these were hour-long episodes like that's that's a long time in comparison to many many season series again yeah i i agree i don't think it was necessarily a time or budget problem that they had i think it was they were making weird choices with the time and the budget that they had so yeah that's actually a question that i have for you guys um since one of your big complaints was that you wish it had more time and space to breathe, what would you have wanted them to spend more time on? Because um, I'm not exactly sure what I would, where I would put that myself. Oh, I mean, I just want to, you know, like in the second episode, for example, we get a lot of time like on this terrace where they're eating uh, or like exploring different parts of the apartment. And there's just like a little bit of space to kind of for the story to breathe we're in like a very confined space there's not very much time going by but when you compare that to the first episode it feels like a lot of time goes by and it it feel and there's a ton of characters there's a really big space and it's just a lot it's just a lot of information we could have had like an entire episode of just lyra and jordan and then another episode with just the Egyptians and just, you know, like 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of we crammed it all into one thing and, you know, they're, they're doing what they have to do. And I totally agree with uh, with you, Francis. And uh, and I actually think that like American premium TV has gone in this direction of shorter and shorter seasons, you know, that that are punchier and get, you know, there's not a lot of filler there. There's not a lot of fluff. And they just want to like get to the point they want to be the trending conversation. So they, you know, they're very punchy. But I don't know, like, I feel like Jack Thorne shines when he has a little bit more when it's more intimate. Um, And I think that I would rather play to his strengths in that way instead of requiring him to cram in uh, the Svalbard with Will's story kicking off in one episode. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that one of the other things which I've noticed is very much more common in these sort of long form American serials rather than the, uh, again, the the more British ones is the idea of almost a throwaway episode or a novelty episode. Yeah. Where the classics are, if you look at Buffy, if you look at um, Scrubs, they've had musical episodes. Like that is not a... That you, you couldn't do a musical His Art Materials episode or a musical Doctor Who episode <laughs> okay, particularly once, easily, though I would love to see one. Once More With Feeling is very plot relevant. It is not a throwaway episode. It's, it's, it's true. I love it. It's one of my favorite episodes. It, it, it feels slightly throwaway. <laughs> like, it's great. I don't disagree mm. with there being actual throwaway episodes. Oh, yeah. There no, are a lot there definitely are. that they need to just be axed out. But not that one. But this is not a Buffy podcast, so move on. No. <laughs> but can we make um, the, it o- the other thing I was... No. Um, no. No, 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 Peter, no. I definitely agree with basically everything you said. Um, and then I think the one additional thing I have to add is just that I think a lot of the weaknesses that we complained about kind of don't stand out as much when you're viewing the series as a whole. Um, because the mm. things about you know, like not having enough demons and crowd scenes and stuff. There are some episodes that really do feel, you know, like fully fleshed out and like they have enough demons and stuff. So it kind of, it ends up feeling more balanced and and the weaknesses don't stand out as much. I feel like I need to specify, I don't give a crap how many demons are on screen. I really don't, especially in crowd scenes. You know, whatever, put a few birds flitting by, we can use our imaginations. I don't care. What I care about is that very seldom, if at all, do we feel the emotional connection between a person and their demon. Like, Absolutely. I even don't... Well, yeah, that's like, what I meant, but... I, I, like, they could have cut out demons from the crowd scenes. I, I would have preferred getting, like, more... Why, there are so many scenes where Lyra and Pan should have been touching. Like, where Lyra should have mm. been holding Pan. Where, where Ma Costa should have been getting comfort from her demon when her son dies. You know, like, I'm, I'm getting all worked up about this again. Even though. <laughs> but anyways, just I'm just saying, geese. like, in the books, they were referred to as a body and their demon because they are both one human being together. And that was not shown in this. I, I can't even think of a time, particularly when you see Marcos's demon. Like it, it obviously didn't. You see stand it out like once me. or twice. Like yeah, I, I'll take your word for it. I, I genuinely didn't know. The other thing I'd quickly like to say, just going on the, what would you add if we were going to add more episodes or more to the episodes? The very start, the first episode, we very quickly left Oxford. There was not a. There, there's so much flavour in the first set of first kind of part of uh, 
Northern Lights as a book or Golden Compass in You Guys Speak. <laughs> and it's just not there. She's not having mud fights with the Egyptian kids. We have no idea of her link of the link to the Egyptians basically until she sort of turns up and then it's explained when she's there. But like you you have no idea that she's actually been interacting with these guys for a long time. She's been there's nothing of her rebellious behavior in that initial kind of scene setting which gives so much context to when she's suddenly trying to be all pretty and nice when she's with Miss Coulter and it's a that's a big contrast to literally up to the eyeballs in mud and you know she she goes in and the i think it's this it's some of the serving staff are basically reprimanding her for being so you know muddy and kind of getting in fights and she she just doesn't feel like a wild child in the same way that she does in the books mm-hmm. yeah i i think that's the kind of stuff that i'm that i mean where we would get a more intimate portrait of like where everybody's at and just have the time to do that stuff so that when yeah. you do move along you would yeah those contrasts would emerge and um play a little bit more yeah. not to be all i was right but a little bit, because if you'll recall in our episode on the first uh, episode, I mentioned how I didn't like it opening with Asriel because it made this less of Lyra's story. And I think that's what it is. This is the book is very much Lyra's story. And this is not Lyra's story. This is the his dark material story, you know, but the book is very much here's Lyra and here's her story. Mm-hmm. Is is that bit just going back to that? Is that bit actually part of the books? in this in this trilogy no 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 i didn't think so i thought it was from the uh later it's from the prequels yeah yeah okay just checking but yes you were right thank you (laughs) francis can stay everybody else get out (laughs) (laughs) all righty so now that we've bashed on it a bit what's everyone's favorite bit mrs coulter all the way yeah sorry especially mrs coulter whenever she's losing her shit completely (laughs) <laughs> Ruth Wilson was amazing. The casting in general in this, I thought was very, very, very good. But Ruth Wilson, I love her. She could she could torture me any day. It's cool. <laughs> I'd enjoy it. As long as she doesn't cut away your soul or even even then. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> that's, a, that's a quote from the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How would you sum up your podcast in 10 words? Well, that's actually going to be on the back of the DVD of the first season of His Dark Material. <laughs> she could torture me any day. <laughs> it's just on her IMDb page tomorrow. Uh, Bad Wolf definitely has my permission to use that if they would like to. <laughs> when I was rewatching it, there was actually like probably my favorite part from Lyra locking her in that room and then they scream at each other. And then, you know, the rest of the episode, the way that it goes downhill with like the machine blowing up and then the big battle and then, you know, the ending with the where it turns into a horror movie and the monsters are trying to get onto the ship. Just all of that stuff I just thought was so great. And watching all the episodes like boom, 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 like a lot of energy builds up to that episode. And I feel like it pays off really well because it's been about the gobblers all the way up until that point, you know, with the Egyptians trying to get the kids back and like everything happens in that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, it, you know, I guess, I guess if what's his face, Mr. Thorne, Jack, 
Jack Thorne, mm-hmm. I know we were just talking about him, but it's me, um, wrote all the episodes. I can see where they would kind of flow together as one, as opposed to a lot of television where the episodes would feel very separate yeah. things. Mm. They do feel of a piece. When I was watching it like that, I was like, oh, there's all kinds of stuff that I'm noticing now that I've seen the ending, and I understand what all of this is aiming at. Um, it did feel different. It, like Almost like this should be like a streaming show that launches all at once kind of a thing. Yeah. Maybe they thought it was going to be at one point. Yeah. Although I do think that if there's any one episode that kind of holds together on its own. It probably is that Bullvanger episode just because it's so aesthetically distinct and, and it like has oh, that kind of point. horror movie vibe um, yeah, that's yeah. like really separate from, I think, what a lot of the other episodes are doing. I think that episode and then kind of like episodes two and three were, were definitely my like favorite moments in the show. See, I definitely come into more of the ending being my favorite bit i loved the i mean in the books it's a very powerful betrayal of lyra by asriel you know she's just kind of getting to know him truly as a person and she's just you know he takes her aside a little bit you know before he goes out and has a an actual heart to heart and they kind of connect for the first time and then he he just goes off and kills her mate that's that's truly it's a massive massive betrayal and it was it, it was very powerful and it, it felt it was a very intense scene anyway that that whole thing came together for me to give quite a enjoyable experience in in a sort of schadenfreude sort of manner um <laughs> and the other the other one was at the when asriel and Coulter are talking at the entrance to the portal and they're really it's such a charged atmosphere. They are they're debating at times the finer points of you know, of theology, especially you know theology in that world. And there, it it feels like it feels like they're on it feels like they're on a date. It feels like they're kind of mentally, verbally sparring with each other, trying you know poking holes in each other's. Uh, arguments, but in the manner which you can totally tell that when they first met, that's what they did for fun and for interest and as a bonding thing. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it felt like they were settling back into their old routine and then realizing that actually that it was going to take them different ways again. And that you know that that's a lot of emotion to get in what was a very very small bit. And then you know after they've had an armed standoff briefly, as you do with a you know an ex lover, <laughs> then. Um, they, they, Asriel dashes off, and then Coulter turns around and goes back to what she's doing. And they're obviously at loggerheads, but also have a great amount of respect for each other. And it's a very, it's just a lot kind of encapsulated in that. I really, really like that. Yeah, I also really great. liked that scene. Yeah, but Ruth Wilson was in it, so. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard um, she did a show for, I guess. Maybe originally for the BBC, but it's on PBS right now about her grandparents, where she plays her own grandmother. Um, it's called Mrs. Wilson. It's apparently really, really good. A friend of mine just recommended it to me. I haven't seen it yet, but I thought I would give that a shout out in our Mrs. Uh, in our Ruth Wilson appreciation segment. The whole podcast, you yeah, mean. Okay. basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
We're actually starting a separate podcast yeah. just for yeah. Ruth Wilson. Just for Ruth Wilson. <laughs> it's called Ruth Wilson. <laughs> Ruth Wilson, please hurt me. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bad Wolf, you can't use that one. Yeah. <laughs> We do know at least one person who works on the show listens to this podcast, so it might get back to her. <laughs> cut it, cut it out, cut it out, go. I'm 100% fine with her knowing that we like her a lot. <laughs> That's a what an understatement. perfectly accurate summary of everything that just transpired. Mm-hmm. So we had least favorite part down next, but I've definitely already gone over mine. When we were talking about our general feelings, which is that Ruth Wilson. Shut oh. up. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> least favorite. No. no, obviously my least favorite was Roger. Fuck that little boy. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but if Roger was played by Ruth Wilson. Oh, then he would have been the best. <laughs> no, um, just the the way that they f- spent their time and money. On spectacle instead of emotion. Mm. It's funny though, because in the notes you say that you didn't need to see the big bear fight, and I feel like they specifically mm-hmm. like, didn't show us the big bear fight, or they did it as little as I mean they could. You know, like we talked about that in that episode, how they make that fight all about Lyra and her face and her emotion. Yeah. But at the same time, we didn't get too much of her relationship with York, which is a very important relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they. it was sort of, again, hinted at and glossed over isn't the right word. It just, as, as you said, just didn't get quite enough screen time to make it feel like it's an actual friendship. It really felt like, they, considering the screen time we've seen of them, they've met just. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be giving a... Uh, a, I wouldn't be granting a cultural name to someone I'd met what is essentially the equivalent of a few days ago. Like it's, it just it didn't feel like they knew each other very well. Like I think I think it's Lee in the book who says you know like that if ever a bear loved a human he he loves that little girl, and I just didn't mm. I didn't feel that in this book, no. or in this show. Sorry, in the book I did feel it, but if, it, yeah, it feel, yeah. I'm sorry. No, you it, it just it it just feels like he. Does, he just does what she wants, but you can't quite piece together why. Like it, it's not a logical jump for him to do that. It's, it's at least more logical in the books, considering he's he literally commits part of his army to go up to what is essentially a hut in the middle of the mountains, science cabin, which he already has a few people there. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> so, yeah, science cabin. <laughs> That's good. I'm more that. thinking of I like think- spoilery things that have to happen, and I'm like, why would he do this? No. Yeah. 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 I think this is a thing that um, Lonnie Day and Wretch talks about a lot that like a lot of what I saw in my rewatch, like the, you know, the streaming kind of style rewatch is that the themes are really strong. Like there are some big ideas going on and I feel like the interactions of all of the characters are in service of those themes. But if you don't have, if you're not centering your narrative energy on the emotion and the characters, then people are not going to be invested enough to pick up on your themes. You have to like put that foot forward and then everything else will follow behind. And I think that's what you're kind of 
saying Caitlin. And I felt that too. Yes. That's not my least yeah. favorite thing, but I did feel it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, Francis and Alan have different least favorite things than the stuff we've already talked about. So let's shit on this show that we're putting so much time into <laughs> some more. <laughs> we love this show. Okay. It's great. It's a great show. It's just no, a segment don't. that Anya forced us t- to make. Uh, was this my idea? I don't even remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it definitely is your idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'll, 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 I'll bite. I am, my problem is really not actually with this adaptation. My problem is I don't, I have never particularly liked the start of Will's story. I, it, it has all of the right ingredients to be well, well done, sensitive, give him a really good reason for what he does later but and like they they got that they they got that across it was as good as you know as it could be but that doesn't really make up for the fact that it's kind of air it's slow it's like there's a bit of menace and the bit of menace is added by the things that they added in the show but even then it's it it just feels like quite a weak start and then the that's exacerbated by a decision which I completely agree with, but it's just a, a shame, which is that they added this in season one when it actually comes at the start of book two. So at the start of book two, it makes sense. You picked up a subtle knife for the first time and then you, you start reading and you start in this completely different place and you're getting to know, you, you're getting to know like real Oxford or our Oxford, Will's Oxford, if you will, if you will. Um, <laughs> And it's so it, it makes sense there where it's a you're starting from a kind of quiet and slow pace and then you're building tension and then eventually it all gets too much. But when everything else is happening all around in the other in the other world, in Lyra's world, then it feels like we drop down and then we go back up again. It just feels like they're two different parts because they are two different parts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's to be fair. If that's my biggest problem with the series, and I think the series has done really well, but it, it it just tore me out of it time and time again in those in those episodes. I have a weird question. Hmm? If Will lives in like our Oxford, like you were saying, do you think he's seen the Golden Compass? <laughs> the Daniel Craig version. Yeah, I think he has more taste than that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> No, I, guess uh, it, I guess it must not be our Oxford then. It must be a slightly different Oxford where his story <laughs> is real instead of being fictional. Right. Infinite oh, worlds right. and all that. I can't remember exactly what time zone Will is based in. Because I think in the in the show, obviously, it was very much modern. There were kind of the phones were more modern. The TVs were flat screen, which... If we're going to kind of Lyra's time, which is, I think, it, I think it's the nineteen nineteen eighties is when she first gets, uh, when Mark Costa first takes her in. So it's what nine, late nineties. In the books, the books take place in the nineteen nineties, both of right. them. Yeah. yeah, because just because you you change worlds, but you don't ever time travel. Because Jesus yes. was the same in both universes. <laughs> Yes, that's Spoilers. why. Yeah, that's Except for um, one who was called Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Minor difference, major catastrophic changes for the church. You know, 
As far as like, anyways, that's I'm not even going to go into that. Um, so they both take place in the '90s, but now they've put it, they've put both of them modern day. Yeah, I think they're both in 2019. Well, we talked about that a little bit in the first episode. That um, in the book it felt very like 20s, and in the show it felt much more like 40s. Right. In terms yeah. of like 20 years has passed. Yeah. Technologically, but it's all the same characters. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, as far as like borrowing an aesthetic, they've both kind of advanced forward the same amount from the a book to the show. Which makes Alan's question more relevant, in which case, yeah, maybe, again, maybe you just had better taste than that. <laughs> I badly <laughs> derailed us when I had a really good transition because my complaint is related to yours that, like, I wish we had a better idea about what Will wants um, as a character. I don't feel like we get close enough to Will to understand anything about him because he kind of emerges as a character who is like a supporting incidental character in Boreal's story. Like it is Boreal's story. And Will actually operates in a, like if you're talking about storycraft, he is an antagonist to Boreal because he is blocking Boreal from being able to get those letters. That's his goal. And that's not good for Will narratively because he is one of the protagonists of the series. And so to introduce him as an incidental antagonist is weird and is going to require a recalibration of like, the character in the second season. We're going to have to spend some time kind of unwinding the way that this happens. And I don't feel like we got a good investment as good of an investment as we need to get in will. Like we didn't spend, I feel like we should have spent maybe an entire episode just with will and like understanding him and what he wants and what he needs and what he thinks he needs and you know, all of that stuff and really like getting into him and we're not there. I I actually felt the complete opposite. <laughs> I loved how they introduced <laughs> Will because he's not a main character in book one, you know? So I like that Lyra's story brought us to Mrs. Coulter, who brought us to Lord Boreal, and then we followed him, and then we met this kid who just sort of seemed... Like, if you haven't read the books and you're just watching the show, you would just sort of think, what does Boreal want? What is he after? What's going on? What's up with this kid? And then it would be slowly revealed throughout the season that actually it's the kid that's important, not Boreal. Oh, no, and I, I love think that that's that really idea. Good. No, I, I think that's good. I just think that when we end it and he's walking through the portal, we just don't know enough about Will for him to be set up for the next season the way that I would want him to be. I just wish we had spent more time with him at some point. That's actually something I would like to, I'd love to hear from kind of the Twitterverse. Anyone who has not read the books, but has seen the show, did that come across? Was, did, were, you, were you asking, what is this guy doing? Kind of, how does this all link together? Did, did you get a different uh, experience from, say, what we got having read the books? Yeah, yeah where in our experience was like, holy shit, Will's on the screen now. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> a few of those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is part of what he's going for in the way that he introduced Will. 
Like it's very cool for book readers. And I think it works just fine for people who are only in the TV show, but I don't think it has enough narrative energy for Will to be a primary protagonist in the next season. We're going to have to spend some time in that, that first episode, at least like what does Will want? What does he need? What does he think he needs? What does he think he wants? And stuff like that. Cause we just don't have it. We have some, you know, basic motivations and, and some plot stuff that's pushed him along, but we don't have a deep look into who he is. I think, I think we're going to have plenty of time for that because book two is shorter than book one. And they've already covered some of it. So in general, you think it's going to be a bit more expansive and have time to linger and like do more character work? I hope so. Uh, I like book two is mostly about the characters. Like there is not much action in book two. It is mostly about Will and Lyra getting to know each other mm. and, and figuring out about going from world to world and, and what they can do in each world and that sort of thing. It it's not very actiony. Even even like the big climactic stuff at the end, it it's almost like it's almost like the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like you feel like the whole thing is building to something, but then oh no, somebody's somebody's stolen away and some shit has gone down. <laughs> somebody's stolen away and somebody's missing a hand. That is actually <laughs> pretty fucking accurate to the end of book two. <laughs> I think they I think they're going to dedicate a lot of time to the kind of visuals of it as well. I think they're going to they're probably going to try and make Sitagatsa and the uh the the other stuff that will come to then, which I don't want to spoil because I know we haven't covered it yet. Yeah. But it, it, there's there's a lot of things which could be vis- visually very intense and that's just going to require a lot of work. So they'll I guess in the story terms, they'll just expand on the characters and on on their interactions. But the main the main stuff is going to be really working into these big, beautiful scenes, this very different landscape, and tr- I guess trying to again get that horror feel across like they did in Bolvanger, mm. where because again, it's it'll all become clear, children, very very soon. <laughs> that is true. A lot of a lot of book two is kind of like a. Or could be done as a bit of a horror movie. I'd love it. Yeah, that that would be good. If they could, if they could make a change of tone and make it really, you know, actually quite scary, which the BBC, you know, BBC have done on occasion. Again, Doctor Who, the um, oh, the what, the something. Are you my, uh, are you my daddy or mummy, whatever? The the gas it's mask mommy. child guy. Yeah, I, I don't remember. What is it's, the it's lost later. child? The something? The empty child. The Empty Child, that's the one. I mean, that's a scary, scary episode. They can do horror, and they can do horror well. I mean, I don't like saying anything good about Stephen Moffat, and he wrote that episode. No, but it was... uh, (laughs) Death of the Author. Yeah, I guess. By which you mean Caitlin wants to kill him? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I pretty much exactly meant that. I don't want to kill him. I just want him to stop getting work so that he can stop being in love with his own genius. (laughs) <laughs> or yeah. so that we can stop seeing how in love he is with his own genius I feel that applies to a large number of people well Stephen Moffat's the Especially one where it him. actually like affected things that I like so that's very fair liked past tense whatever anyways <laughs> anyway this is not a Doctor Who podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that should be the title of this podcast this is not an X podcast yeah <laughs> 
This is not a goose podcast. <laughs> I could talk about geese, but it's, uh, it's fine. Really? Didn't even yep. come up. Surprisingly, the lack of goose <laughs> is not my least favorite thing about this series. All right. So, problematics. Did we want, did we feel like we covered them? Did we want to talk about any, do we have any new problematics? Uh, I just, I wanted to hit back on something that I was thinking about when we first met Boreal and he crossed over and I was like, is this is like in the back of anybody's mind? Is there like a thing of like, you know, he's uh, a man of color and he's part of a fascist religious organization. He's infiltrating British society with possibly the aim of, you know, expanding this religious empire and I was thinking of, you know, xenophobic, kind of racist, right-wing anxieties. And, like, is it going to be playing with that? Is it unconsciously playing with that? Which would be really problematic. Um, but I think that because they cast Will and his mom as people of color, and because Boreal's entire story revolves around them and his henchmen are white, I like, a lot of that dissolved for me. And I, I feel like it's like it just vanished and it's not a problem at all. So I was really happy with how all of Boreal's story unfolded, despite, you know, my least favorite thing uh, just being like the potential lost. I think Boreal, Boreal was incredibly well casted and he he fundamentally was threatening for purely character reasons, which I yeah. think is quite important. And like Caitlin said. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't. It, 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 the color of his skin was not played upon as something alien. It was entirely within his predatory movement styles. Even you know everything was everything was down to the sheer quality of the acting, and I think that was that as, as you said assuages the worries about even unconscious biases. Mm-hmm. There, he was so great. I want to watch everything so with him in it. Yeah, he's yes. really good. Yeah. And Him I and think Ruth Wilson. He's... All the bad guys in this one were great. <laughs> I, I mean, it's easier... everybody actually was really good. It's easier to be a great villain, right? Isn't that what people always say? I think so. But also, like, this, like, Boreal in the show is a huge upgrade over Book Boreal, in my opinion. And we'll talk about yes. that when well, we Well, he's barely that. even in Book One. And so I can't really judge Book Boreal for the most part. Mm-hmm. I just, I always pictured Boreal as, like, when I was reading the books, as, like, this almost like stereotypical English nobleman. Yeah. You know, with like a weird mustache and always yep. wearing a waistcoat and mm-hmm. like, like just always, always fancy dress. No, that means something different in English. Always dressed up. <laughs> in a very in a goose onesie. <laughs> yeah. In Honk. a very nice way. Um, One hand you in know, the coat pocket and, kind of a and thing. And kind of, yeah. <laughs> and only threatening because he had political power, not right. threatening in his physicalness. Yeah. So I really loved how this actor, whose name I've completely forgotten because I didn't think we'd be talking about him this much, so I didn't look it up, just completely went this other direction with it and made him this like frightening person. Arian Bakari, I think. That sounds yeah, right. Yeah, that sounds right. And yeah, I just, I love what they did with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's great. So that, you know, I just wanted to like touch back on, is this a problem? I don't think it's a problem. Um, The other thing that we talked about during our season being a problem was um, with Fodder Quorum and like um, him being a character who had a disability and then that being erased from the show. 
And I did want to say that Jack Thorne has commented on people talking about this and that he did not want to cast an able-bodied actor for a disabled character and therefore took away the disability so that he could get the actor in that part. Like I, I think it's a good policy to not cast able-bodied people for disabled characters. Like that is a good uh, policy to have, but it, those good, that good rule led to what I think is a misguided result, a bad result because they should have cast somebody with a disability to keep the disability in for a heroic character. Um, so yeah, it is, it makes it kind of shitty that they cast a disabled character as like a background character then. Right. Instead of this main character who gets to do real cool shit. Mm-hmm. I guess it kind of helps a little bit knowing that, that they like made a bad decision for a good reason instead of a bad decision for a bad reason. But like, yeah, it's like, it's still not great. Anything else? I don't have any other problematics. I think everything else we've either talked about to, to death or, um, or is just like things that were sort of in the book that they kind of had to do. Yeah. I th- I, again, that's very similar to my my opinion. I don't see anything specific to this adaptation, which is a problem. Uh, you know, the casting is well balanced. It felt like things which were there were done sensitively, and I mean, any any problems which we kind of have picked out, a lot of them are in the books anyway, and it would be quite a jarring experience to possibly take them out. Um, yeah, the the one which we have talked about before, well, certainly you guys talked about before, is the Egyptian problem and um, working out whether they are necessarily a pastiche of um, Romani Gypsy culture or whether they are, you know, that that kind of that kind of tricky dynamic, where it's, it's working out whether the due level the due level of respect has been kind of paid to that tradition. Yeah, but that's just that's a, that's a book problem. That's not a serious yeah. problem. Just baked in. Yeah. So I think we cannot put it off any longer. <laughs> it is time yeah. to assign demons to each other. Oh my god! Which, oh god. according to the notes here, this is when the podcast breaks up. <laughs> I'm just gonna disconnect now. I'm gonna turn off my internet. I'm gonna I'm just gonna leave Europe and then. That's 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 uh, it. I'm done. You I don't can't want to... leave a place where you aren't. <laughs> oh. oh, hey, not yet. Thirty first of January. <laughs> oh, I, I don't mind starting because mm-hmm. okay, well, whatever. I don't mind starting. So <clears throat> for Alan, I have chosen a border collie. Oh, oh. are are you gonna explain why? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I wanted something smart. He's a janitor. <laughs> No, I I don't hold to that all servants have dogs bullshit. That's <laughs> bullshit. Anyways, um, or if you have a dog, you have to be a servant. Dogs are more than that. Anyways, uh, so I wanted something smart that could also look really sad and pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> but was like, you know, a good working, wow. good worker, good, you know, very smart. You know, it could be really on game, but sometimes, you know, it just is like, can I maybe just, you know, can I just have what you have? Can I just, you, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that that sad puppy dog face. This is the most perfect thing anybody's ever said. 
And then for Anya, I couldn't choose between two, but I think I'm going to go with Raccoon. Okay, I'll take Trash Panda. Yeah, because they're very smart and they are very fucking vicious and I would not want to mess with a raccoon. <laughs> and <laughs> That's true. On- it's funny. You know more. I, I, not everyone who's listening to this podcast knows about my reputation yeah. as a vengeance demon. But yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that like a lot of what you talk about, like with your job and and how much education you have and people would think, oh, Anya's the, the book smart one. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Anya will murder you. (laughs) But raccoons are very smart and have adapted very well to, you know, what humans have done to their homes. So that's uh, that's why I went with raccoon. My other option was a bee because, again, uh, you know, hardworking, smart, but also kind of vicious. Really hates neonicotinoids as well. Really hates those. And um, I know we weren't going to, like, Alan and I weren't necessarily going to do one for Francis, but I do have one, and I have a funny story behind it, so I thought I'd talk about it. Okay, go for <laughs> and it. That is down, yeah. a pheasant. <laughs> and okay. That, and that is simply because um, the I've only ever seen a pheasant in England, <laughs> and it was very strange to me the first time I saw one. I, I was very much like, what the hell is that? And I was living in this room. Uh, are in this house with girls from all over the world. And it was just me and this girl from Denmark uh, home at the time. And she knew what it was, but she didn't know the English word for it. So she had to go get an English-Danish dictionary and look it up. And I was like, that's a pheasant? Anyway, so it's just something that I uh, associate a lot with England and my time there. <laughs> just just for context to all of the people who don't know much about pheasants, they are they have been bred over generations and generations and generations to be absolutely utterly stupid they, they are, <laughs> i didn't they're not naturally existing i thought they were just like wild birds oh no they, they, they were they're naturally existing but they're not naturally stupid or they weren't oh. naturally stupid but then they were bred to just basically be shot for fun oh is this like a rich people hunting thing yes this is exactly a rich people hunting i thing. see so they specifically made them stupid yes to make them easier to hunt yes i mean they, they weren't the cleverest birds anyway because they were birds but they're they're now very they are the the number of times that i have been in a car and we've had to slow right 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 down to a crawl from say 60 or 70 miles an hour because there is a pheasant and then it looks up and it goes huh oh oh is that hmm shit um Mm. And then kind of walks, walks a little bit, and then you kind of go a bit closer. Then it walks a little bit, and then you kind of rev for you, you like beep your horn, and it looks up, and goes, "Oh shit, I can f- fly!" Ah, and then just kind of go, <laughs> plop, 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 and then like crashes into a hedge or something and makes them fall out of itself. It's 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 like slapstick, except it's terribly, terribly Birds. sad. So I, di- I didn't know any of that. I I just personally, I think I've only ever eaten pheasant while in England. Also, so pheasant Fair. is just something that I associate with england they are pretty. aren't the males also rather flashy yes yeah. they are they are very they're, okay. they're very pretty well, that, things that works yeah <laughs> run, run with it <laughs> but no I, I take no offense okay great <laughs> um i'll go next i guess since i actually have something for this category so first of all i want to say that i chose this a long time ago uh almost a full week ago before we got the tweet about it, because I picked a hedgehog for Kate. Wonderful. 
I can confirm this. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> uh, yes, I did this on Sunday. And um, I immediately sent Alan uh, a screen cap of the tweet that you had sent out that said, uh, you quote tweeted that like, it's a brand new year. Introduce yourself. What are five things most people don't know about you? And you responded, hello, everyone. Anything you don't know about me, I don't share for a reason. Have a good 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes. She's a fucking hedgehog. Um, No, because you are like, you have like a sweet, friendly side, but you deploy it very selectively um, with people who you think deserve it. So, you know, like cute, cute little, cute little creature who can put up its spines when it wants to. Very accurate. Um, And then uh, for Alan, I chose an African gray parrot. Um, (laughs) I'm just going to look up what this looks like. Uh, it's the smartest bird, like actually just the smartest bird. Um, and, um, but there's something about, um, the way that like avian intelligence, like they're so smart, but also like just a little bit distant on some level. Like they're, I feel like Alan often like holds some, um, he can be hard to read when he chooses to. And like hold some things back. And so um, that was kind of where I was going with that. Like, um, you know, when you when you don't want people to be able to know what you're thinking, you have your demon change into something that is inscrutable. And I feel like birds can be inscrutable to uh, to mammals sometimes. So when I was born, my mother Mm -hmm. and father bought a. this type of bird that you are talking about uh really as a hatchling to be my like lifelong pet because they live as long as like a person so this is a complete coincidence that you have said this and i thought it was funny whoa uh we don't i I don't have that bird because it's really fucking annoying uh They're, they get very That's bored. That's not why I chose it for you. <laughs> well, they get very bored because they're so smart. And so, like, yeah. they just scream all the time because they were, we, you know, we were in a shitty little house and uh, all of this stuff. So, like, um, I think my mom had it for about 20 years or so and then finally gave it to somebody who collects birds like that. But, yeah, they live to be, like, 90 years old. And so... That's funny. Uh, made me think of Emmett. I, I can't tell you the last time I thought of Emmett. Yeah, there's a, a really famous African gray parrot, I think called Alex, maybe, who was like trained to do a bunch of things and um, was like really big in uh, like animal studies and something, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's how I know about African grays. <laughs> And then uh, for Francis, I picked a tamarin, um, Mm -hmm. which is a small monkey. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I think you're an evil child napper, but because... (laughs) Although they are kind of (laughs) golden. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, okay, but it's like way smaller and goofier than Mrs. Coulter's monkey. Um, um, no, because I think the things <laughs> the things about you that stand out to me are your like your curiosity and your distractibility. Um, and I feel like yeah. monkeys really embody that 
the best. So, <laughs> okay, okay, <I'll... laughs> you'll take it. Um, it's the best of a bunch so far. <laughs> I don't know if Alan's got anything. <laughs> I do have one for you. <laughs> oh God, best of the bunch so far. I mean, it's... <laughs> good to keep in mind that we don't, like... we don't we don't know you that well. It's okay. Do you not want a golden monkey? No, 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 no. This is good. This is good. I'm, I'm going to get like ragworm or like um, <laughs> blobfish or something next. So. <laughs> no, mine. Well, that's what like I picked for myself. I put a link to my uh, my demon in the show notes, uh, which is a horrifying creature. Um, <laughs> that's that's actually what my soul looks like. Um, no, I picked I picked for Francis. Uh, Charlotte from Charlotte's Web. That, that is your demon. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I I I will take that. That does. I like that. That 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 one. That one. <laughs> she can even talk already. Like every, you know, it's, it's all there. Hmm. Literate spiders. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much your thing. So yeah, um, that that one, that one. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, oh I feel God. respected. You know, I, I feel like choosing a spider is a cop out, but whatever. <laughs> each of you, each of you had your own take, and I fully appreciate it. Bros have to stick together. You know, I understand. <laughs> We're under assault. Do we? Did you have ones for the for the other guys? Oh yeah. No, I just guess. you. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean. Hmm. <laughs> I picked for my longtime friend until tonight, Anya, because we're about to break up over my choice. Um, the Texas coral snake, um, which is the second most deadly snake on Earth. I was going to say, I need to recite a rhyme to figure out if that's the good one or the bad that's one. That's right. Of course you know this. It's the, it's, it's the one that will yeah, kill you. Yeah, that's like the thing they teach you. <laughs> it's like red and yellow kill a fellow, red and black friend of Jack. Okay, that actually doesn't help because I don't have a picture in front of me to know what stripes <laughs> you did are it next correctly. to each other. But... No, you did it right. That's the, that's the right way. So it's, it's black, uh, yellow, and red. And um, I, I think the snakes are beautiful. And I think that like you and I have been down in the trenches fighting people before, you know, um, defending people that we care about. You are a deadly fighter um, and you are a beautiful <laughs> fighter um, and you are, uh, yeah, you're, you're the person you want in your corner, I think. So it's, um, it's a powerful demon and it's, uh, you know, if you go with like the Jungian archetypes, like we talked about demons, uh, snakes represent life and um like rejuvenation and you know they shed their skin they're about transformation and growth and like you're always onwards no regrets so you're full of life like that's you oh i like snakes i'll I'll take that one plus yeah plus you had that metal snake in your hair yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) callbacks yeah uh let's do episode four to the specific episode, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I picked a kinkajou for Caitlin. Ooh, this I is have no like idea a, what that is. It's a South American cutest fucking thing ever that um, only comes out at night. 
it's a nocturnal animal. They're very hard to find. Like it's difficult to get pictures of them and stuff because they're like, eh, just leave me alone. I'm just doing my thing. Um, but and like they're very dexterous and very smart. Um, and they're, you know, but they don't hurt anything. They're not like a predator or anything like that. They're just out there doing their thing at night. Um, but the thing about these, they're the common name for them is a honey bear because they are yellow. And I know that you don't like yellow. That's and I true. think that every time you would look at it, you'd be like, you're cute, but I don't quite like you as much as I would. <laughs> wow. Now, I think you feel that way about yourself. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> wow. That's Oh, uh, they are kind of cute. Oh, they're not as yellow as you made it seem. They're kind of brown. But no, I see where you're going with that. Don't they have really big eyes? They do have really big eyes. Well, because they're nighttime things, yeah. So I have, um, in, in the time that we have been talking, I have done my... Oh, my I was going to oh, say, okay, you don't great. have to oh do God. this. You don't. <laughs> well, no being one. a biologist helps. You do just have like a Rolodex of animals. That's true. So. Pr- pretty, pretty much exactly that. So... Um, so I had for Caitlin a weaver bird. Obviously, I know you guys less than you know each other, but uh, something that stand, stood out time and time again has always been the constant attentiveness to craft and to detail, particularly. And, Ooh, and she's a knitter, so yeah, yeah oh. as a, as a as a weaver bird is a particularly intricate uh, designer of structure. I, I found that quite appropriate, and also they're adorable. They're really, they're really quite sweet. <laughs> the, um, their nests are intense. Yeah, <laughs> quite something. Do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to make one? No. <laughs> <laughs> a very fair answer. Yeah. Um, for Alan, I had now. This is this is a tricky one because we actually never discuss how, um, like the actual sizes of demons that one can have. But I had I was torn between an elephant and a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason being that consistently he, he's always thinking and uh, there's, there's always a lot of sort of introspection and evaluation going on the whole time, which to me in my slightly strange biological head is what is happening all the time in the head of an elephant or indeed a tortoise where there's a lot going on and it just it, it, it kind of gets thought about and processed and then comes out in a elegant manner so yes but I, I have no idea how you'd manage an elephant demon i don't think that's a particularly <laughs> i feel that would be selected against in the uh, universe i wonder if they uh, it would make air travel very difficult yeah it would make yeah. finding a home like a house <laughs> difficult <laughs> i just think it would be a really bad idea <laughs> <laughs> and then for anya um i had a serval uh being kind of a large is that a cat yes okay um and the reason being that they are they are actually they can be quite sweet in their own manners and they are you know they 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 can be dedicated and they are I mean, they are cats they are very much cats but they are also very at home with where they are and what they are doing and they also have some terribly sharp claws so i feel <laughs> go- oh my going- god you guys <laughs> 
<laughs> we're just all scared of you. I'm sorry. Just, I guess just... so. I feel like, I mean, not that I'm, not that you're wrong, but I just, it's, I think this is going to be funny for people who listen to the podcast because I don't know if that side of me necessarily comes across <laughs> in this situation. <laughs> just be, be warned. If you ever, ever meet Anya in the street, yeah. then just be really, really nice. <laughs> Get so you a coffee. If you go- I promise I'm not a terrible person. <laughs> if you guys. Google serval, one of the first things that comes up is, are servals dangerous to humans? <laughs> and the answer <laughs> says, sure, they can be affectionate and are normally not aggressive to humans. But remember that this is still a wild animal. <laughs> Perfect. So, as I said. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I think I don't think anyone's well, I don't think anyone's too insulted, right? No, I was just gonna say I think we're all still friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. mostly. I think the pheasant mostly. thing I was feel... the worst. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's all good. I appreciated it greatly. <laughs> I will say you just wanted a chance to tell your pheasant story on the air, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so years ago. Uh, some friends and I were having this exact same discussion and I don't remember what we decided about anybody except that everybody was in agreement that I was a goldfish. What? What? (laughs) And I'm very happy that that did not come up this time because I was very unhappy with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel very validated that your real life friend uh, at Isla Collins on Twitter agreed that you should be a hedgehog. Um, because she clearly knows. Although I have technically met you in real life, so this is true. Maybe I'm an IRL friend too. Maybe um, you should read that whole and tweet. And then, oh yeah. So sh- uh, the whole tweet is: Caitlin's obviously a hedgehog. Alan, I'd say, is an owl, which also makes me feel validated because smart bird. <laughs> um, and Anya's is an otter, at least from your podcast personas. I like um, otter too because they can be quite vicious. <laughs> <laughs> but also cute they're very curious. and they like to to bang on things yeah. use tools so maybe hold hands. a bit of that viciousness I'm, does come across yeah maybe yeah there were problems with otters as well it's fine yeah. so yeah i think i think uh, the only thing i didn't want was for somebody to say a fish for me and nobody did and i was like oh great thank god no, but I feel like we did get some some really good taxonomic breadth here. We got like uh, arachnids, reptiles, birds, mammals. Yeah, just kind of everything. It's not bad. What what didn't yeah. we get? Didn't no, no one had, uh, you know, no marsupials, pro, no protists, no insects. Uh, well, one of yours Cause, was because we're not magisterium creeps, right? But <laughs> I mean, I, I I was sort of deciding between raccoon and bee for you, so. There was almost oh, an insect. That's, that's true. Yeah. But I, I did come down on the side of raccoon. No one went for slime mold. <laughs> or... Not technically an animal. <laughs> Could you imagine if someone said, I think you're actually kind of like a parasitoid wasp? You... <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Isn't that what that brutal. cardinal is? Ooh. In the show? You might be right, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> that's what I thought it was. There's like the kind so, that lays its eggs. Because most of the stuff. big wasps are parasitoids, yeah. right? Most like wasps are. Yeah. 
or they go in a most big... wasps are parasitoids? I, I believe I believe most wasps are um, parasitic rather because there's a huge breadth of parasitic wasps and quite a lot of them are very specialized. Watch the biologists but... go off. Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the biology podcast. <laughs> All right. So now we're going into some feedback that we have gotten over the past couple months, I guess. That's crazy. Um, we got some really good emails from people. We've A lot of them were very long and talked a lot about future book stuff. So we've edited them down to things that we can talk about or mention where we are now. Um, if you hear your email and like the important stuff in that email is cut out, that's because we're not there yet. <laughs> but we wanted to like, you know, acknowledge that you sent in some good feedback. So from Sophia, we have... Uh, I just wanted to offer some information that may make Alan feel better about Lyra's ignoble demon. While the ermine is indeed a short-tailed weasel, the ermine's winter coat was once highly valued in Europe. There are periods in history where only upper nobility and high clergy were permitted to wear ermine, so it's a, sign a signifier yeah, of a person's importance. Pan turning into an ermine and wrapping himself around Lyra's neck would give the impression that she was wearing a fine ermine collar, historically a signi oh, fuck this word. <clears throat> historically a signifier of nobility and also something that Lyra is very likely not allowed to wear in the world she lives in. I thought that Ooh, so it's like transgressive too. Mm. It's like not just speaking to her quality, but also yeah. I thought that would be of interest. Really enjoying revisiting the story with you all. Thank you, Sophia. I do believe a lot of there was more in that email about what Lyra's demon turns out to be forever at the end. Mm -hmm. But obviously, spoilers. And there was a nice picture of a guy in dead ermines. So you could see yeah. what the royalty looked like. Yeah. He looks very covered in fur. Mm -hmm. Nice wig. <laughs> I really but I really like that. And I appreciate you writing in about that. Because I, I really did not know that. And it made watching the show when he's mostly an ermine through the show. I was like, yeah, because she is like, she's like a little princess. Yeah. She would hate being called that. I know. I know she would. That's ex exactly what I thought after it came out of my mouth. She would sock you in the face for that. All right. We got an email from... Uh, Anna, you think Anna or Anna or um, I'm not sure in Portuguese because she's from Brazil. I would say Anna, Anna. probably with one N mm. from Brazil. Um, again, this is edited down. Um, so she's talking about uh, Lyra and some of the symbolism and um, things that were feeding Philip Pullman possibly on like real world stuff that is embedded in the books symbolically. So she says, for starters, <clears throat> Lyra is a northern constellation, sometimes also called the fallen eagle. Mythologically, Lyra is supposed to represent Orpheus's lyre made by the trickster god Hermes and said to be capable of enchanting even Hades. And Hades is the god of death. Like in the books, Lyra is such a good liar and sweet talker that York calls her silver tongue. Uh, you know, so enchants death. Also, the constellation is bordered by, and this is the part where I am definitely reading way too much into it, the constellation Hercules, a demigod, uh, and Draco, the dragon, which is one of the forms that Pan takes in one of the early chapters. Um, Cygnus, the swan. We all know the importance of swans. In the story, kind of like geese. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to say this. <laughs> Volpecula? Yeah. Sure. Which means a little fox, I guess. Um, and Lyra's last name, Balakwa, is a character in Dante's, uh, well, I, okay, in Dante's uh, Purgatito? Pur- no. Purgatorio. Purgatorio. Thank you. I hate Latin, you guys. <laughs> um, it's he's, a hard one, to be fair. He's kind of the opposite of Lyra, um, described as lazy and indolent, sits down instead of climbing to Purgatory's doors. Um, I have to think that Pullman definitely knew about this, because come on, one does not simply write a trilogy criticizing uh, Christianity and authoritarianism with a bunch of religious literary references without at least acknowledging that Dante's Divine Comedy exists. Um, Oh, also, I'm an astrophysics undergrad student, so while I'm definitely not the most qualified person to do it, if you can't find anyone else to fill with his dark materials, science-related questions, I'm here for it. I think I missed that bit the first time I read this email. (laughs) It would have been nice to have a second opinion when I was talking about the Northern Lights and (laughs) Well, there's more books. Because if you all remember my hat metaphor, not the best. Anna, let us know if we fucked anything up, obviously. Please tell us. But don't say everything, please. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've definitely read Dante's book. Um, I do not remember Balakwa at all because I think that book's really boring. uh, Because I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that book is awesome when it came out because it's a lot like The Good Place is now where like they talk about hell and they're like oh yeah this guy's in hell and you're like haha that's hilarious because i know who that is uh but when you read dante's book it's like this guy's in hell and i'm like i i don't know who that guy is so it's not funny and so like i don't recognize the name Balakwa at all and that's weird that he would associate lyra with somebody who's lazy i wonder why are you saying that like as a leading question, or do you genuinely not know? No, I don't know. It's just something to think about, I guess. I don't know. Oh, okay. I think, well, we can't talk about her name until book three, but I okay. think it makes perfect sense. The next letter is from Kelly, who's at Glazebrook on Twitter, and she said, Obviously, it is impossible to talk about some of these issues until you finish the entire trilogy, but you can see in this first book where he starts to go wrong. The male characters are strong and powerful and described as having this innately, rather than the truth that masculine qualities in men are rewarded in this society. Lord Azrael and John Faw are both described in this manner, powerful leaders who deserve their positions because of who they are, not because they choose to project masculine qualities. Whereas what makes Mrs. Coulter evil is her usage of feminine traits. It's clear Pullman is projecting a lot of his own fears about women and their nature onto Mrs. Coulter. She's evil because she abandoned Lyra, turning her back on her maternal side. She's evil because she is pretty and uses that to get what she wants. She's evil because she longs to have power and is a woman. Yet Lord Azrael uses his masculine aggressiveness to get what he wants. Lord Azrael also abandoned his child in every way that mattered. Lord Azrael uses violence against children and those less powerful than he. Yet the reader's not invited to think it's Azriel's exaggerated masculinity which is at fault for his shortcomings, but the reader is invited to see Coulter's exaggerated femininity as untrustworthy, fake, dangerous, and manipulative. It is clear that Pullman believes the power men have is due to something innate, while the power women have is only because of their use of their sexuality and femininity over men. Seems like someone has some real fears about women. 
It would be helpful if there were a single other woman in the series who performed femininity in the same way for different ends, but I can't think of a one. While there are multiple examples of masculine traits being used to various ends and designs, which means no one character is a stand-in for masculinity, Mrs. Coulter stands alone for her performance of femininity, which does show what Pullman thinks of women who choose to adopt and perform feminine traits. This one's interesting because I don't disagree with any of the points being made, and I do think Philip Pullman is, like, very out of touch with women. Like, I just don't think he had. Like, from the way his writing comes across, I don't think there are that many women in, in his life. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think it's something he's doing on purpose. Mm, sometimes, and I yeah. do mm-hmm. think we see, not to the same extent as Mrs. Pol- uh, as Mrs. Coulter. I almost called her Mrs. Poulter. Anyways... <laughs> But we do see a woman who chooses sexuality over not sexuality. I don't even know how to describe that. Over being a nun. And that is shown Chastity. in a very positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yes. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 mm. I don't, I, as he said, I don't inherently disagree with any of the points in and of themselves. I am slightly uh, uncomfortable making quite such sweeping statements about someone who I don't know and we you know we can only get as much as we can from his writing i i would say that there are definitely examples in the prequel uh, slash sequel series of women who are definitely portrayed better not perfect not by any means but certainly they are fiercely competent they are they are doing things themselves and they are also a woman it's it's not like they're doing things and these are the masculine traits that are coming out. They are they are like Hannah, I think it is uh, in Oakley Street. Not that, that will mean anything to anyone yet, but she's she's scary in her power, in her sheer intelligence, and I I, I think that possibly he's got better. Um, I'm again, I don't disagree. I think Miss Coulter is evil because she's evil. There's. Well- I, th- I think what she's saying specifically is that Mrs. Coulter uh, performs femininity in that, like, her hair is done, mm. her clothes, her nails, her makeup, mm. you know, she exhibits these, like, she performs the femininity, uh, and you don't, yeah. like, the other female characters are not doing that. It's not that... Mm-hmm women are evil or that they are evil for their it's that being like that performance of womanhood is evil there's not another character mm-hmm. who's like dressing up and then she's like a good guy or something you know what I mean? yes yeah i completely agree that was yeah, yeah it is it is too bad that we don't have like a, a foil for mrs coulter you right. know someone who's just as fancy and smart and 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 feminine but not an evil not bitch evil. right yeah i mean and i think yeah Sorry, you go. I was just going to say that um, I think that that comes in again more in the later published books, mm-hmm. where you you do start to see those things which we we're we're harking for, we're desiring, we we want some other representation of femininity and the the actual sides of women that exist in the world, rather than just having them all put into this one sort of stereotype mess of a terrible human being <laughs> it, we, we you do see more of that in the later books but uh, yeah it, taking this on its own i can see m- massive problems with the representation of women yeah yeah i yeah. i loved getting this letter before the show started because i was thinking about the performative like masculinity and i saw a lot of that in the portrayal of Azrael, like mm-hmm. trying to be 
tough in the face of his love for Lyra. I really think that's there. Mm. I also think that the show does a bit better than the book in yeah. terms of yeah. just like broader representations of femininity because Ma Costa has a much bigger role in the show. We just like see so much more of her mm-hmm. and she definitely um, like has a very feminine style to her. Um, and I mean, this is minor, but that the like badass girl at Bullvanger um, mm-hmm who's like organizing everything and, and like the girls clearly have their shit together there. Yeah. Um, And the reporter is like very put together. Yeah. And heroic, Mm -hmm. you know, that would have been someone who we could have gotten to know more, you know, who, Mm -hmm. who who maybe could have been that, that particular type of foil to Mrs. Coulter. Cause Mm. even the character that I was talking about later on, who we learn has, you know, chosen to be kind of feminine, you know, the times that we see her, she's like that that stereotypical scientist that Anya's described who always looks kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there's that. Mm. I'd also point out that Asriel is a terrible person in in his forms, not just because of the terrible toxic masculinity that you're seeing the whole way through, but because he is he is Miss Coulter. They are essentially incredibly similar characters. And so by that sort of nature, they are both horrible, horrible, horrible people doing exactly the same things in almost exactly the same ways for almost exactly the same reasons. So, like, I, I it, it makes her a very interesting kind of character comparison and writing comparison. But I do think that in the in the show, it definitely felt like you didn't like you didn't like Azrael. He wasn't a nice person, but you hate which is good. <laughs> It's interesting though because I think in the books, at any rate. Everyone else loves Azrael. Mm. Like, I can't really talk about it without spoilers, obviously. But everybody on the quote-unquote good side thinks what Azrael is doing is A-OK. And nobody ever brings up the whole child murder thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and while I do think he... No, I can't talk about that. I'm trying to think of how to talk about this. Like, I do think his the way his story comes to a conclusion is proper for who what what what's happened especially how who it comes to a conclusion with mm-hmm. that makes no sense if you have no idea what i'm talking about uh, even if you do know what i'm talking about that makes no sense. i just mean whatever book three we'll talk about it all like i don't think the story ever forgives him lyra certainly doesn't but no. everybody else in the story does and that's that's bad it's so it's it's incredibly troubling that they're all just like, oh, yeah, but Asriel's doing good things. You know, it brings up again the question of kind of utilitarianism. Um, if he ends up doing the things that he's aiming to do, and if you consider that to be a good thing, then are his methods thus justified? Which obviously is a philosophical question for yeah. a different time. But like, it's a, it, it makes it, again, he's, he's not a good person, and definitely as the reader, you are at least slightly invited to consider the fact that he's he's like he's not likable he's not he's charming um to the people who he's interacting with but you can see as the reader knowing his underlying intentions so you're like wow that's a, he is not a not a nice person he's not doing good things well and he's charming in a way that specifically like abusive men are allowed to be yes. viewed still as charming yeah. by yes. the greater culture and this and like kind of like what Kelly was saying the way he's just playing into gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things yeah. I do like is that in a very similar way to what I was talking about earlier with how we were following Boreal's story until we found Will and it turned out actually this is Will's story. The thing about Asriel and Mrs. Coulter is that for a long time they think the story is about them, like within the meta, I suppose, until yeah. they find out actually this is all about Lyra. And I think that that is like I hope in the show we really get to see that come home for uh, Asriel in particular because I don't really like the dawning on his face yeah. that it's not really all about that him. it's not about him <laughs> and all and all this shit that he's done has all been about Lyra and how he spent so much time dismissing her like in the book he's just like oh shit I've got this cool ass daughter I really want him to see that all the shit that he's done and everything his whole teleological purpose has been all about Lyra. <laughs> you and want I want him that to driven home for him. That he's wrong about her, that she's yeah. special. Exactly. He, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I did almost put that as my least favorite part, but I didn't want to be petty. <laughs> See, it's become such a thing now that I can't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it actually a thing or just among us? Well, yeah, no, I that's don't what I mean. If everyone that's what, else hated No, oh, that's yeah, what yeah. I mean. Among okay. us. Okay. <laughs> so I, I really hope they drive that home in the show that everything he's ever done has been about Lyra. I think that'll be great for him. Yeah. <laughs> rub his nose in subvert, it. Yeah. Yeah. Subvert some male expectations. Like <laughs> the whole, I, I really want to see the bit where he realizes that his whole dream, like I can't really go into any specifics here, obviously is useless and will never work. Like that's <laughs> fabulous shit in the book, but it's just like, it's just given to us as a bit of a write-off. It's given to us. Well, it's given to us in a way that it, it, uh, affects Lyra's story, which I guess also works, but I really want him to have that dawning that, oh, everything I've been trying to do will never work, no matter what. And actually, I'm just here as a distraction. Great. Ah, sorry. I also don't like Asriel. I like Mrs. Coulter better than Asriel because she knows that yeah. she's an evil bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I feel that, I do feel that Coulter has managed to, um, it, it, it still maintains some sort of guilt about it, whilst Astriel just doesn't. Yeah, like she, she definitely feels more human and more connected. Like wants to be connected to Lyra, whilst Astriel just literally does not care because he's a terrible person. <laughs> but like the book doesn't seem to know that, and I, ah, <sighs> mm. oh, that that does bother me a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On on reread, it definitely bothered me a heck of a lot more than it did the first time. But mm -hmm. I read it when I was quite young, and so not so aware, I suppose. So, um, Dan emailed in saying, in the last episode I listened to, you discussed Yorick and the bear's power to potentially see the future. This is shown when Yorick invites Lyra to take a stick and fence with me, um, page 225 to 6, chapter 13 in my edition, whichever edition that may be. I'm a, chore I'm a choreographer, and whilst I was in grad school, we read a lot about mind-body connection. I had a spark of memory of an article that identically describes this encounter. On the Marionette Theatre by Heinrich von Kleist, 1810, uses two parables, one about marionettes and another about a bear, to consider the notion of grace and conscious action. I think it echoes your discussions of original sin, teleology, and potentially the concept of dust. Another perspective on how slash why Yorick is able to trick I offer too. Thanks and all the best. Dan. Yeah, so... um. Susan, who uh, follows us on Twitter, is a longtime friend of ours, suggested to me that uh, I read a book by Philip Pullman called um, on well, what is it called now that I 
um, suddenly find myself speaking into a microphone. Ah, that one, yes. Yeah. His book about writing. Yeah, it's his book about writing. It's like on, it's not on demons or something like that. That's what I want to say. But um, he talks specifically about On the Marionette Theater by Kleist, which was interesting to me when Dan sent this in. I was like, oh, I I know what you're talking about. Um, because like, and I've read it and he, he quotes it. Uh, the book is called Demon Voices on Stories. And like what happens in the parable is like almost exactly that fencing match. And it talks about like motion and counter motion and how you don't, once you start moving, you don't really have control over what happens because physics, like, you know, uh, there's a kind of determinism to your body. Your body can only move in certain ways. And he is able to see what Lyra is going to do because he's like, oh, you started moving like this. So you're going to be over here. Boom. I knock the stick away every single time. You can't trick me. I can see what's going to happen. And so like, this particular on Marionette Theater is a direct inspiration of Philip Pullman on the story. And maybe not everybody knows that. Like, this is, you know, the, the roots of the story. Like, he read this and he was like, oh, I, this is why there are bears in the story. Like, literally. Oh, that's so interesting. Because otherwise, there would be no talking bears without this weird parable about determinism and your body and, you know being able to read things because the way that the puppets move, like you can see the strings and the body can only move like this or that. Um, yeah. So I think he's right. There's all those themes are like buried in this parable. And then also like he was like talking bears. This is cool. I'm going to just use this. It does make sense that there would be some kind of outside inspiration because as far as the world building is concerned, it is just like humans and then they have this like cool demon thing. And then there's also just talking bears. Yeah, it's a little weird. <laughs> you know, like there's no other like semi-sentient animals. Yeah, the cliff gas. Like non-human peoples. Maybe can like know what's going on, maybe. But they just seem like strong animals or something. I know we've mm -hmm. talked about how Philip Pullman doesn't like plan out his stories beforehand. Mm -hmm. But I think having the bears in this world really sets you up for things for the other worlds that we're going to visit and how wild they get. I agree. That's a good point. It gives him permission later to be yeah. like, whatever, man, I can do whatever I want. That's a good point. All mm -hmm. right. So that is everything that we got from the books. And uh, we got a really great email from uh, Jason about episode one, where basically he just um, gave a commentary track to our podcast episode, which I loved. And um, Jason does a great podcast about uh, the good place with our other good friend, Vivian. Am I saying that right? Why does doubt just crash over me? Did it she vi. goes by V sometimes, vi. but her name is Vivian. Okay. I don't think she's not. Just think Vivian. of the, just think about Aunt Viv from Fresh Prince. <laughs> of course, <laughs> cultural well, references um, galore. Yeah, and then they also have a Bob's Burgers podcast called Burger of the Week. Yeah, so if you watch either of those shows, definitely check them out. If you like the philosophy stuff on our show, they do a, like a a version of that that's like entertaining and funny. Instead of boring. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vivian was, I think, a philosophy major or minor in college. She took a lot of philosophy classes. And so she like she knows her shit. And and 
I really don't like philosophy in general, but they do a great job of explaining how like each episode is relevant to the actual theory. And, and it's made the show a lot more enjoyable for me. I mean, even though The Good Place is an amazing show to begin with. Okay, so just to read through some of uh, Jason's points here. Okay, I, I feel like it's awkward just because a lot of this is directly commenting on things that we saw. All the little subtleties in the opening are awesome. We even see Will walking opposite of Lyra on the stairs, which we did talk about in the spoiler zone. And then later on, we got Will. So, yeah. Uh, and then all the other worlds turning into the folds of the knife, or if you're a good place fan, the time knife. Office <laughs> thinks here about how things that have changed from the book are unacceptable. I feel like he's poking fun at me directly. Um, but okay. <laughs> he's also poking fun of himself. <laughs> they changed the year of the decanter of Tokai. Unforgivable. The demons looked great. Needed more though. Which I mean, true. He agreed with me because I am always right about the opening scene. Of course, we've already talked about that. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Spoilers. Stick it to... I feel like talking shit about C.S. Lewis is worth it. And I believe it was us who said stick it to C.S. Lewis because there was no wardrobe or they took out the stick it to C.S. Lewis scene. And he mentions that, of course, C.S. Lewis was very openly Christian and didn't exactly try to hide it with the super subtle themes of the Narnia series. And Pullman is very subtly telling us his thoughts on organized religion, especially in the Ember Spyglass. The Magisterium Room reminds me, not me, but him, of the Senate Chamber in Star Wars Episode One, which actually, yes, very true. I thought that too. Not a good parable to I make, though. So let's move no. on from Star Wars episode one. Let's move on from. I sick of. I just watched the fan edit that starts with the Darth Maul fight at the end of episode one. So I have no idea what you're talking. about. I am. I, I disagree with that whole fan edit. I like us so one. over talking about Star Wars. So yes, I agree. <laughs> I mean, unless we want to talk about Baby Yoda, that's fine. That's something we all agree on. <laughs> We can do that. Anyways, I really disagree with all of your dislikes about the Roger Asriel line. Oh, this is wild. I agree that someone like Roger would absolutely not yell at someone like Lord Asriel, but his reply, everyone's special. To me, it was more of a, she's no more special than any other person, which is not at all. That was my interpretation anyways. I think it would have been delivered better if he wasn't shouting it and you could get a proper tone. That's true. I would yeah. have liked to have seen that be a more intimate scene, but the idea of Azrael and Roger having an intimate scene is also wild. So, <laughs> sorry, I, I did I did agree with that. That was my interpretation of it as well. Was just that everyone's special, ergo no one is special. Mm -hmm. Yes, I feel like that again would lead into my wishes for him realizing that actually life's the most special person alive. Really yes. good. Um. Regarding the Galileo talk, I don't know if I gained respect for him or lost respect, but either way, if you mouth off to the Pope, you've got some planet-sized balls. <laughs> and that was all from Jason, from the multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> was there anything that we, like, as we go through these, if there's anything you want to say about episode one or, you know, or like episode two? No, I think I agree with Jason that... It was the shouting that made the sarcasm not come through quite so well. Yeah. And I just apologize for getting strangely literal about that. Or maybe it... Nice. Ha ha ha. Or, or <laughs> maybe it seemed too sarcastic or something. I don't know. It, was it, just, it didn't land yeah. with the shouting. No. But again, now it's become our thing and I love it. 
So. I love it being a part of the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's Can you imagine what would we what would introduce our spoiler section if we didn't have <laughs> that? <laughs> I do plan to talk about Galileo more in book oh. two and three. So this I'm so was like excited. an introduction to him. <laughs> I will check on the size of his balls. I don't know if we have records, but I'll look. Okay. I still have my Galileo text. I'll have to go back and actually read that. That book's funny. I've read it. It's funny. If you if you read it where the Pope stuff, you, you read it like the Pope is dumb. You know, like I don't know if uh, in that voice, then you're like, this okay. book's hilarious. Not the like yelling over a dirigible noise mm-hmm. voice. No, that's not going to work. It doesn't work ever. <laughs> I will say uh, he brought up the opening credits and we haven't talked about that today. I still love them. I still watch them every time I watch an episode. Like I never Me skipped too. over them. They are fabulous. I love them so much. The music is so fucking good. Also, yeah. we just haven't talked about the music and, and how much that really made the season work. Hugely. It was stunning. It, it was as good as Game of Thrones in terms of a introductory sound like it's mm-hmm. recognizable immediately i i've heard it just kind of for adverts and stuff on bbc and it's like ooh ooh this makes me excited i finally got to the point at the end of season 1 where now when i hear the hbo noise my brain goes his dark materials instead of game of thrones <laughs> yeah. so I'm feeling very good about that oh my god yes <laughs> Yeah, it's in, in the way that they're edited in too. They give because it's a cold open to the show, and then something will drop, and then it does that thing of the dust coming together and the little explosion, and the music starts up, and you're like, "Ooh, that just gives that scene a little more kick." Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. All right, episode two. Uh, we've got some tweets uh, for episode two. Um, Andre, who is at Compod. Um, he said that Thomas guy in episode two seems like he could have an unfortunate meeting between a boy, a cat, and a staircase. Just thought I should mention that. Um, dun, dun, dun. Totally correct. I'm so glad I didn't see that tweet. <laughs> <clears throat> I, mean, uh, Kara, I, I mentioned that in the show also. I literally no. said, I wonder well, if then. this is going to be the guy Will kills. <laughs> <laughs> well, in one ear and out the other, so... Yeah. Kara Fox at Kara Fox uh, said Billy was wearing his best sweater for Tony's demon settling ceremony on the night he went missing as an explanation for why he was for why he was wearing it. That sweater. Uh, one of my weird knitting rants. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that could be true. Nobody else looked particularly dressed up, but. Oh, but it's his brother. You know, like Ma Costa was like, no, you got to wear this instead of that. And I'll wear my overalls over my sweater like I always do. I'm trying to remember if that's actually true. Uh, that's definitely in another episode. I don't know about that one. Anyways. They definitely have a look, don't they? Yeah. So I, I, I respect the look. They're like, we're going to wear a really intense, complicated knitty- knitwear that we're supposed to believe we knit ourselves. And then we're going to cover it in oil-stained overalls <laughs> i mean i guess that it, would save the knitwear it just seems it just seems a strange choice to me but i guess have you ever been have you been on a houseboat uh no so oh yes this is another another 
place where you can bring in your expertise. Ah, yes. Yeah, so um, one of my good friends, uh, used, well, I think he still does live in a houseboat, but when, when, we were, when we were good friends here, he lived in a houseboat, and so I would go motoring around with him um, up and down kind of the Grand Union Canal particularly, mm-hmm. and uh, around kind of to Oxford and stuff as well, location. Um, but the, like, the kind of knitwear and like overalls even if you'd get like knitwear is really really practical for that particular environment it's very hard wearing um it's it'll keep you warm even when the wind is kind of whistling and you're well, you know, 100% you're my 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 not complaint but issue isn't that they're wearing knitwear it's that they're wearing like fancy ass fair isle knitwear why wouldn't they just be wearing like a fisherman sweater yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe they just have a massive tradition of it, and they Maybe. take massive pride in their in their knit knitting. I mean, you you are, you are right that they're they're particularly kind of complicated knitwear for being on a boat where it's going to get torn by an engine or anything like that. Like it it will get horrible. So why? But then if that's what they make, then that's what they make. I I don't I don't know. Well, again, are they the Dutch originally? The Dutch yes, have, the, the I think in the books massive... it does it does say that yes. Yeah, yeah. culturally Dutch. Yeah, do they do they have a massive? Do they have a really interesting knitting tradition? I don't know. Do you think I they sell that either. for money? Is that like part of what they do? They're like, you know, like the Amish make wood stuff. They're like, here's furniture, <laughs> and they're like, the Egyptians are like, here's a sweater, and they're like, oh, Egyptian <laughs> sweaters. These are these are awesome. Oh my god! Maybe. Yeah. They're actually get become gentrified in the next thirty years. You, know, oh, no. you go to your Anbaric <laughs> coffee shop and then you wear your Egyptian knitwear sweater and you're like, Oh my god, I got it from the vintage store. <laughs> this is a nightmare world. <laughs> <laughs> but it's here. It's now. <laughs> we also got hit from generosity. Uh I miss you so much, Generosity. I miss your Star Trek podcast. She said... Generosity is Caitlin's other partner. Mm-hmm. Yes, the one I cheat on you guys with. Or I cheat on her with you. Yeah. I don't know. It's lots of cheating all around. Yeah, and lots of cheating. I'm just saying, like, we could just talk about this show, and I would get all the same information, and then you could go to Star Trek, and I could listen to that. Anyway, she said, I don't think we're going to get a really good look at the alethiometer until she gets into her flow state, but I love how much time Caitlin spent trying to figure out the symbols on it. She's a definite overachiever. Uh, also, That's a nice this- way of saying I have too much time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> You're obsessive compulsive. You know? Also, Mrs. Coulter and Roger were in the same room together during the dinner at Oxford, and I wondered why they didn't appear to recognize each other now, which is a good point. Well, of course, Roger does clearly recognize her later. So I think he was just kind of trying to not be awkward. Mm. He was like holding holding that information back because he thought he might be able to use it later. Is that episode two when he writes the letter? I'm thinking that's right. Oh, is that it? Yeah, it so is. So maybe we're it just is. interpreting differently yeah, that scene. Because he 100% recognized her there. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. He was like trying to call her out. Yeah. He looked her in the eyes and said, Roger. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know if he actually looked her in the eyes, but you know, you got that. Yeah. Do you think it. she remembered him? Oh, 100%. She knew exactly who he was. Well, before he said Roger? Yeah, because I, I think she does that whole thing to figure out which one is Roger. And so I don't think she remembered him from the dinner. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. I don't think she would have either because she she doesn't strike me as the type of person who notices the servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Except for the Scottish butlers. She's all about them. <laughs> she knew that guy. I don't remember a Scottish butler. What are we talking about? At the At end. The science cabin. <laughs> oh, Thorold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Scottish I got butler, there. yeah. I got there. I forgot about him. So episode three. Okay, so um, Susan at Susie Hula, I think. Yep. Listen, I, <laughs> Susan, have read the books multiple times, and I can't figure out the whole sparks at the stove thing that is so obvious to y'all, so... Mm. I was obviously referring to, in the books, Lyra throws some flour onto the stove to make an actual fire when she pulls the fire alarm, which I thought that they were foreshadowing there, but then it didn't happen at all in the book. Uh, in the show, so... Right, because the demon separator at Bullvanger in the book is very mechanical. It's not yeah. electric at all, so there's no way to make the machine itself explode. So that's how Lyra burns it all down. There's also no way to burn down, like, Bullvanger as it is in the show. Yeah, because oh, they, yeah, they stayed it's... there. Well, because, like, all of the architecture for all of the Magisterium buildings is brutalist architecture mm. from, like, the it's 40s like and 50s. Yeah, that's well, only concrete and stone. In, in the book, Lyra wasn't trying to burn it all down. She was just trying to get everybody out. She was just trying to cause some chaos. Yeah, She yeah, wasn't yeah. worried about burning it all. Like, I liked that change in, in, the, in the show where she wanted to destroy the machine, but that wasn't even a thought... Like, it never even occurred to me that she should even try to in the book because it wasn't a thought in her mind. She was just, get everyone out, cause some chaos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm yeah. Tr- I think we discussed that in the Bullvanger episode. Yeah. Um, we circled back to mm, it. I don't remember that. Did we? We definitely yeah, discussed remember. that it didn't come up after we talked about the foreshadowing of it. Yeah. I don't remember. It's so hard to remember that stuff that I don't remember. My life. okay um and sarah uh, who is at sarah louise with three e's um also the monkey's reaction to the dusting seemed bizarrely innocent like he didn't understand what or why this was happening and yet that woman and and her demon are already no strangers to death surely see i actually really like that bit because Mm. I think the whole, or one of the points in the story are that nobody actually knows what happens when you die, especially to your demon, mm-hmm. especially since your body stays behind and your demon dusts away. And well, I do get it that they've seen that before. And so like, I, I, I refuse to believe that that hasn't happened before. Oh, no, 100%. I'm sure he's seen that before, but I, that doesn't say, that doesn't mean the monkey knows what happens to a demon when it dies. You know, so I don't think he's like, oh, dust. I didn't think about that. But more like, hmm, where does, like, more philosophical where what happens, not like mm-hmm. physically what happens. Okay, so episode four, uh, we got an email from Melanie who said, I'm listening to your podcast about, Alan, I thought you said you deleted all the compliments. Oh, maybe I <laughs> got tired by this point and was just copy pasting. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, 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 it's fine. Melanie sent an email that said, I listened with interest to episode four regarding your comments about Lyra not being affiliated with any particular organization and is therefore following her own moral decisions. 
I've always thought that that's where her friendship with Lee comes from and why he is such an important and incredible character. Everyone else, Egyptians, York, Serafina, Mrs. Coulter, Lord Asriel, although they care about Lyra, some more than others, they all ultimately put their organization before Lyra. Whereas for Lee, he appears to have just blustered through life, never having any real roots anywhere or belonging to anything, which is the same as Lyra. And it's when he meets her that he then just devotes himself to her and her welfare. He has no other agenda. He doesn't even know or wouldn't even care about the prophecy surrounding her. He just wants to protect her. It's like he has no problems in life at all, but he makes Lyra his problem because he loves her as a father should. I like these points about the book. It super doesn't come across in the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Yep. But I think that's definitely the energy they're going for, right? In that talk that he has with Serafina. Yeah, but I think with the whole Lee character, they forgot about Show, Don't Tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it just whooshed. And he doesn't seem... He, he, is, he does not yet love Lyra as a father should, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. he, again, it's like, it's like Yorick. He's, he's met Lyra, and, you know, she's obviously incredible, but he literally has to, <laughs> as you say, ask Serafina, so what am I doing? And she goes, well, you know... She's kind of important. He goes, "Uh, oh, all right then." Like it, <laughs> it's it's not a, it's not a love thing. It's like a you know crazy crazy amazing witch has told me actually this is what you should do, and she probably knows a little bit better than me. So yeah, why not? I guess. Yeah, and she sent this in in episode four, and I would say that in that episode we meet Yorick and Lee at the same time, and I think she forms a stronger bond with Lee than she does even Yorick. Um, and I will say in episode four, that's the one where they did their, like the beginning of their relationship. I think that's mm-hmm. one where they kind of got it right. It sort of yeah. went downhill after that when they after decided that. to focus on other things. So that's mm-hmm. a fair point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Andre, who is at Compod, asks, could you please point out more words that don't contain a U, like goose and gerfalcon? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to bring up goose. <laughs> <laughs> It's way too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look forward to uh, to many words, both with and without use, in season two. I will write in to your email address. I will record you an audio note, noting every <laughs> single word you say with a U, without a U, which should contain a U. I will know. I will know. I mean, they they have me as well. We Canada is very pro U. That's true. That's true. Okay, you can you can hold the fort whilst I'm away. Yeah, we don't we don't put or, the Y yeah, entire, which is fucking ridiculous. But Wait, what? 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 <laughs> how? How? Did, what? Oh, I see. With an I. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just oh, you thought we just like took it out? T R E and or like with a U and like T. No, we. It's actually very confusing because we do side with America on some spellings, but we side with British on some spellings so when you're trying to like set your computer settings it only gives you american or british and you're like well <laughs> like what's more important to me z yeah. is the hill i want to die on clearly yeah. so well you are more than welcome to <laughs> okay so for episode five we got some tweets uh from at emma skies skis one or the other, uh, regarding Billy's poorly done severing and how that sends the wrong message about Bolvanger. This is exactly what I said about it. Without being shown what happens and how people react to it, this is just an old, creepy place. It's scary because she was kidnapped, but it has no depth beyond that. Um, yeah, I think that is 
I think we've kind of beaten that one to death, but it's good to know that everybody agrees yeah. that that scene was poorly done. Literally, everybody on Twitter, the other podcast I listen to, everybody is just like, no, that didn't land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, it wasn't that scary. Yeah. Well, we just didn't feel the, yeah. the disgust <laughs> like, oh, yeah. of what happened. The, the think- scary... Anyways, we've we've beaten that one. Well, I think when I was rewatching it that I kind of saw, I ended up seeing that whole thing kind of differently. Mm. Like, um, I agree that it doesn't land and that, you know, all the stuff that we've said, I, I believe that's true. But I think that um, the writer was like aiming at, there's like a big theme in the whole, like when you watch the whole thing together of like ignorance versus like knowledge you know, this kind of Garden of Eden stuff. Are you going to be ignorant or are you going to choose to like go out into the frontier? Are you going to like leave behind your comfort, kind of make the mythical choice of like leave behind what's comfortable and go out into the unknown and, and learn new things and be uncomfortable. And I think that um, what the demons end up, being in that whole thing is something very different there. It's about a cost for knowledge. And, uh, and that's kind of like it, it is exactly the, the kind of thing that you said. It's the, the bad thing is that these kids die because the magisterium is pursuing knowledge. They're breaching a frontier, which is inappropriate to, to find out more information about, uh, and they're hurting people to learn things that it's, it's the wrong way to kind of go into that new frontier, um, hurting people. And so the bad thing is that they're killing kids. It's not about losing the connection to yourself. That, that theme is like downplayed because this other theme that is present in the books and is present in the first book, but is much more subtle has been like amped up. Um, and so I think for book fans, especially that all this stuff is very frustrating and can make this theme that is about ignorance and knowledge invisible in the show, because you're just like, Oh, why are you doing it this way? And it's especially bad with Billy. I think that's the worst spot. Yeah. I think it was a a bad choice because the, the demon relationship is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so another one from at Sarah Louise. Uh, the jingle for Caitlin's Knitting Corner should just be two seconds of the snick clicking of knitting needles. And I'm Canadian, so I'm not going to read that because I think it'll just lead to jokes. But she included some <laughs> question <laughs> mark uh, eh? noises eh? at the end. Which- I think it should be like the theme song, but with instead of the click clock of, um, of the ticking thingy. Instead, it should just be the click-clack of needles. Oh, that's funny. I don't... Like, needles that would don't be actually hard make do. that much noise. So, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Episode 6, Sophia at Raven Dorkholm. Nice. It's good. I like that name. Uh, yeah. She tweeted about Ma Costa breaking the scientist's neck, and she said, the only appropriate response to just following orders. Yes. Taking fools yes. out. Fuck yes. <laughs> yeah. That part was really good in the rewatch. Like it was like uh, I I even got um, my oldest daughter who was off doing crafts. She like abandoned her crafts to watch the Ballvanger episode. In that part, she was like, "Yeah." So 
Also, in episode six, Renee, who um, is at Renee La Scala, um, we were talking about uh, symbolic colors in the episode, and she said that Boreal remains one color progression behind Mrs. Coulter. And when she wrote it, she wrote color with a U. Yes. <laughs> yes. There were dozens of us. <laughs> Renee is a photographer, which I found this interesting. The From idea that what country? country? I'm not sure. I'm going to go stalk her Twitter. Carry on. Okay. So what does the one color progression behind mean? I'm not sure I get that. So you look on a, like um, a color wheel or something like that, mm-hmm. and you're going to have gradients moving from, you know. I see. Yeah. And so, so he's like a darker blue. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he is near where she is, but he's, in, you know, different. Um, and I think the Magisterium overall is like a darker color than Mrs. Coulter wears. Um, she's closer to like a teal, almost, I would say. And Boreal is closer to like a navy or something like that. And the Magisterium is pretty dark blues. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was interesting that like she had an eye for that. So I think she is American. Oh, well, that's how I she wrote she it. Was just, she was just into the show. Us. Yeah. <laughs> she was just right. God, I hate it when people are right. <laughs> okay, and then on to uh, episode seven. So Isla, I guess, I at Isla Collins. Yes, Isla. Uh, said, I saw Boreal Snake reveal as totally intentional. He knows Elaine has mental health issues, so it was a way for him to further unsettle and gaslight her. I was thoroughly chilled by the whole thing. And I completely agree. I think that uh, Boreal, is, every single action that Boreal takes is, in, is a measured thing where he's, count, he's considered the, the, in, the initial implications, the further implications, how it furthers his goal, whatever that goal may be. And it's, it's his goal. It's not necessarily the Magisterium's goal. It's him. And yeah, uh, his that reveal was just to to make her doubt everything about her own sanity. Well, what little shreds of her sanity seem to be left at that particular time? Because I mean, yeah, that that would that would make even even someone who was kind of neurotypical, you'd go, what, what? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially if you went, is that a snake? And they go, no. I think that's like one of the best scenes too. And like that's yeah. part of it, right? That's the one where she says the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, "I'm the afraid like, of everything. You're just one more thing." Yeah. yeah. Mm. Maybe that was my favorite part. That was a very. It was a very good line. Very, very good. She was really well cast, also. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hugely, and her portrayal of mental health illnesses. And kind of psychoses and hallucinations and kind of the uncertainty that that brings to someone's life, I felt was not only sensitive and well thought out in terms of how do we bring this to the screen, but also incredibly sensitively played. And uh, certainly in my experience of various mental health disorders, a very, you know, very true to life. Mm-hmm. It, it really felt. It felt like she either knows what it's like or has done some seriously good research. Mm-hmm. I also liked that they didn't make her like a caricature. Like, yes, I, I think that there would always be 
a uh, a temptation to make her and their life kind of a mess. But they had a very clean house. You know, they had a good looking life. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. it didn't look like she put much thought into her clothes, but nine times out of ten, neither do I. So, (laughs) so, you know, so it wasn't really noticeable except subtly. Mm. And I, I liked that a lot. Yes, in a manner, it felt to me like she was very much, uh, because of that, she was very much kind of clinging on to the things which made her comfortable and made her grounded, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, something which you do see in various different um, conditions, especially where you have any sort of dissociative capabilities. Capabilities is not quite the right word. um, Tendencies. And... So, again, to see that, and even if the implication is not deliberate, it certainly, again, does make, did make that connection for me. Yeah, I thought she was great. She has, like, this aura of shame so often, too, of, like, not just the doubt, but, like, that's what really sells it for me. It's, like, something will happen, and she'll be counting bricks or something like that. He's like, Mom, Mom, like, tune back in. And she's like, oh, right, like, uh, me. And, you know, like, yeah, that's mental health. That's, you know, you know you have a problem and you just can't do anything about it. Mm. I do think Will was played a little incorrectly there, but Mm -hmm. I've talked about that. Yeah, there's Michael, who was at Michael uh, VK1. That was surprisingly hard to read. Um, (laughs) Regarding getting a butler in jail, saying, but he's not actually in jail he effectively conned Iofa into house arrest, which, yeah. <laughs> I do think there's like a level of us joking around that people should maybe take into account when listening to our podcast. I just want to throw that Look, out it's there. it's not actually a science cabin, okay? <laughs> but yes, he did. He was, or Yofer was playing both sides there. So obviously Thorold would be also put in the cabin. I wonder where Thorold was. Like, did Thor- was Thorold in the prison for a while? Like, just in his own cell, perhaps? Or did he get sent for after Yeah, he got put in the science cabin? Just flown out. Yeah, yeah well, I, had some, I had some air miles remaining, so yeah. um, could you come up and for a little, you know, quiet getaway? Also, I'm going to kill a child. Right. <laughs> it's just the weirdest part of the whole thing. He's like, no, I really need this guy up here. And I would be like, it's not a weird request. Like, I get that Asriel just wouldn't even second guess that. It's that if you are the butler, that's like where I'm thinking of this from. And I'm like, that's weird. You'd be like, oh, yeah, like I'll come up You're there. saying like professional service and loyalty is one thing. But like, are you going to move to the Arctic? Well, in, to a, like- in a bear prison. Like, I'm, I'm on the. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm. Let's do it. Well, okay, like, this it is wasn't- your chance to get away from him. Like, go! Be free, Thorold! Go! Okay, so he's not... Oh, if he was in the prison first, I see what you're saying. Because it's the same cabin that we saw them both at in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a special bear house. No, I know that. Yeah, arrest. I know. But it's in, in their In the book, land. it was. In the book, they were put in yeah. to a special bear house. But it's or on like, Svalbard land, right? It's not like yes. Magisterium land. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know about the show. Because it's oh, the same... Okay. It's the same place that they were in, right, at the beginning when... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. But in the in the book, they were put into... Like, it's talked about how the bears have these houses for noble human prisoners. And that's where 
they put the noble human preserves. Oh, that's not, right. And it wasn't it wasn't like a lab, it was just a nice little cabin. Mm-hmm. So I had forgotten that. So in the book it's even wilder that Thorold is there. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. Mm. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so we've made it to episode eight. Um, Scott wrote in to say that uh, we should watch the BBC production Luther for more great Ruth Wilson, and it also stars Idris Elba. I think I sent you guys a clip. I looked at some of Ruth Wilson and Luther, and it seems great. I don't think I've ever even heard of it. I literally sent you a clip, but it's fine. Oh. It's fine. Whatever. I know you sent us a clip, but I didn't remember what it was from. Um, Anyway... At the Moon Had Wings said, I don't care for series television. I have no patience for it. I loved the books, but even at eight hours, they could not do them justice. There were many wonderful scenes and performances, but as a whole, it failed to inspire. I'm still hopeful for seasons two, three, and four. Um, At Gage Greco said, I was a little disappointed by what felt like budget workarounds for the Bear Kingdom bits. He didn't eat his heart, exclamation point. Introducing Will the way they did was genius and even better than the books, honestly. Also, the war film-esque shots in the last episode were amazing. Ruth Wilson, fire emoji. (laughs) Accurate. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with all that. That's like how she would treat you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. There's like a Uh, weird pacing to reading tweets out loud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's It's weird. Um, Uh, As far as, I, I do think... I don't know if this is just talked about a lot or if there's been an actual official announcement that they're planning to do book three as two seasons, but I have, this isn't the first time I've heard that. And I think that that is a good choice considering book three. Mm. Well, depending on where they split it, I would prefer one longer season because I think ending it in the middle could be weird. Mm. Yeah. I'm trying to think through. Because they could cut out a lot at the beginning. The beginning of book three is super boring and not great. It's yeah. I'm it's, wondering if it's for budget reasons too. Like you get double the money for double the seasons. There's, I you know, but it's like you said, we don't want them spending the money on yeah, the Jesus, spectacle. That worked out so well. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, give me more his dark materials. I'm not going to complain. Oh no, I'm not going to complain yeah, as if they do it right. I just I hope we don't get three episodes of the beginning of the amber spyglass because i genuinely don't like the first like five chapters or whatever it is but everything else after that i think is fabulous see more on that in a year i don't know whatever (laughs) yeah whenever we get there um at future foe with some leet threes says (laughs) (laughs) Um, Will Perry is my favorite character, cast nicely. Favorite episode, Lost Boy. Ma Costa's gut-wrenching whales. Best moment. So Lyra and her demon turned away from the world they were born in and looked toward the sun and walked into the sky. So the last moment. Yeah. That was pretty good. It's such a good line in the book. Um, I don't know if you thought the, the show captured it adequately. I feel like it's hard to to do something like that visually. Like, I don't know. There's something that words on a page, some things 
I think words on a page are just better at, at capturing. Yeah, and they didn't really make the light look like sunlight, so Mm-mm. that wasn't. I just feel like that was not the feel they were going for, which is fine. I think I, I still think mm-hmm. it worked well, and uh, well, it worked well after the bad bit where, anyways, whatever. <laughs> I've talked about that. Um, so I I agree that was a really good that was a really good uh, moment. And Will is also my favorite character in the series, and I also think he was cast very well. At Chrissy07 um, said, fave character, Lee. Fave episode, six. Best moment, Lee and Hester singing in a balloon. That was a good moment. I liked it a lot. so good. Yeah. Which one was episode six? Six is- Is that Bullvanger? Bullvanger. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I said is the best. So you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think episode- Two is my favorite. Maybe three? That one's really good, too. I I really loved all this stuff. Just, uh, well, those are the best Mrs. Coulter episodes, so. Yeah. <laughs> it might Ball be Ball is a good one, too, though. Yeah, no, Ballvanger is very good. Definitely. With the, the whole different feel that it has. Oh, I just mean for Mrs. Coulter. Oh, for like Mrs. Even. Coulter. Yeah. No, that's true, yes. Um... I, I guess more just the insight that we got into her character and how she, what they, the choices that they made with her in episodes two and three were uh, my favorite and some of the changes that I liked, which is yeah. rare for me, the book purist. So, did you guys have a favorite episode other than Alan, who has already said? Episode uh, six. Episode six. I think I already said mine too. Um, it, either Bullvanger or. I can't remember episode two or three. They kind of blend together. Yeah, I suppose my um my one was going to be episode eight. I like because my favorite parts in it. Right. I just I, I just felt it tied tied things up really pretty elegantly, which was uh not some not not that I was surprised that they did, but I was just f- slightly worried that they wouldn't, and it would be really disappointing as an ending to what was a very good show. But they didn't. They got it right, and it was great. So yay, well done. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then I just had a couple of things uh, that I wrote here at the bottom, uh, just in case we didn't get to it through all the stuff, which, I mean, I guess you guys don't have to answer this first one, but best knitwear, which for me was obviously Liar's Hat, because it just became kind of iconic, and I like that. Did you see that um, little puppet that they made of her? I did. It, it's that, creepy. It's it creepy has as the shit. Hat. I know it has the hat and her good fur coat, and I'm very happy about that. But it's creepy as shit. It is. Wait, they made a puppet of Lyra. Yeah, yeah. yeah the yeah. the team that made the demon puppets made a, a Lyra puppet, and just it's like on their off time. It's it's very, great and yeah. kind of cute, but also terrifying. Okay, you need to link this in the show notes because it's, it's all also over Twitter. retweeted on it's the all over account. Twitter. Yeah, it's all over sure. Instagram. It's everywhere. I actually uh, dis- I, I disagree. I think my favorite bit of uh, knitwear mm-hmm. was, in fact, Mar Costa's third best jumper. Right. <laughs> which you see for a brief moment in the small bit of episode four. No, I'm, 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 I'm bullshitting you. It's, it's, it's got to be uh, Lyra's hat. It's so good. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> um, did anybody have a favorite piece of music? Let's, let's say opening credits the- aside. I was going to say, does the theme song count? 
I really love that last moment in the opening credits because it does show up every once in a while in the show where it goes like, you know, like when bad stuff happens in the show or like a monster shows up or something, you'll get that theme just for like a second. And it's, it's like all the darkness just wrapped up um, in, in like a single musical phrase that I really like. Honestly, I don't think I noticed the background music that much. Like, it did its job, but it didn't quite stand out a lot to me. Um, Unlike the first season of American Gods, like, that music, I felt like, was super noticeable. And not in a bad way, um, in, like, a really amazing way. But it was just, like, a lot weirder and quirkier. This, um, like, it wasn't bad, but it... I felt like it it wasn't trying to be noticed necessarily. Right. I think I, that he put a lot of thought into Lauren Balf or Balfi, I'm not sure. Um put a lot of thought into the themes though because they like mm-hmm. like Roger and Lyra do have like their song and like Mrs. Coulter has a theme and Boreal has a theme um you know, and so like there is when the people are on screen, you get that music and you might not notice it, but I think it definitely does like subconsciously you're like, oh, this is Boreal. Even if he's not on screen, you know, it's him because it's playing that like twangy kind of um, string music that's creepy. I really mm. liked the music that played during. <sighs> John Fah's like inspiring speech. I think in the soundtrack it's called The Strength of Egyptians. It's just a nice, good, inspiring piece of music that I actually just like to listen to on its own. Yeah, I mean I what well, I I'm not sure if the actual soundtrack is out. It is. It's on Spotify. In, it's on Spotify. Uh I should probably have to obtain Spotify. Well, I assume then... it's on other like Apple Music and what it, I don't know what people use if they don't use Spotify. I but use whatever. YouTube. It's on there too. YouTube. Oh, if it's on YouTube, then I'll definitely. I, I haven't just haven't kind of explored it yet, which is a shame because I did. Rec- I always kind of noticed that it was good music, um, and as uh, Anya said, it did the job of film or TV music, which is to set a tone and set a scene, not necessarily to stand out. Um, so it'd be interesting to actually give it a good listen. But yeah, I just didn't, haven't had a look yet. I'll tweet. When I when I work it out. <laughs> and did we have a favorite? Okay, so this sort of I wanted to be the last thing we talked about, just to end on an up note. Do we have a favorite adaptation choice? Hmm. Specifically an adaptation. Yes, not like a favorite part, but something that they adapted well, whether or not they kept it exactly the same or changed it, but just something that you thought worked well as a choice. Mine was bringing in Will early. I think that's the obvious one um, that like most people agree on. My one um, that I talked about in the episode when it happened was um, I really like the decision to have Ma Costa tell Lyra about her her parentage rather than having John Fa do it. Right. Yes, mm, that's a good one. Oh man, <clears throat> you know I actually I in rewatching. The whole thing, Serafina was really working for me, the way that she can just fly around like Superman. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like that. I like 
the independence of that and how she doesn't have to have like an instrument to fly the simplicity of it and the way that it works with um, the outfit that they gave her and, and all of that stuff. Like, yeah, if they do all the witches like that, it'll be interesting. Yeah. I think my favorite adaptation choice was ad- bringing Lord Boreal in mm, and bringing Lord Boreal yes. in early and with with some things which you don't which are implied but which you don't see it also brings in the idea of the uh windows mm-hmm. like much yeah. much earlier than they usually come and so so you have a bit more of a feel like yeah it might be a little bit premature it might take away a little bit from the time when they first actually tear a hole in reality but i did think that it was elegantly done and i think it really added to the story i guess that's what i meant when i when I said bringing Will in early, like that whole storyline, mm. having that mm. there, I thought was very good. And it, I, think, I think the yeah. the the difference there is the, the Will storyline was already there. Was the Boreal right. storyline? Yes. Actually, I don't think you ever see. I gotcha. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I we we have the same favorite thing. I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think I think that's that. Actually, yes, we've been recording for almost three hours, so I'm just going to say that that is that. <laughs> okay. okay. I, would li- I would like to say, again, very big thank you for you guys for having me here as uh, as for episode four, and uh, maybe maybe I'll be back for the subtle knife. We'll see. So sorry this is your last time, Francis, after the things <laughs> that you said about our demons. Uh, <laughs> I said good things about it. <laughs> we'll Damn. see how your sleep schedule works. <laughs> what sleep schedule? So we are obviously going to be covering the book, The Subtle Knife, before season two airs. Um, but we're going to be taking a bit of a break before then, mostly because Caitlin does three other podcasts, um, <laughs> two of which are about TV shows that are currently on hiatus but will be coming back. So I can't I can't do three TV shows at a time. That's just unfeasible. Um but uh, Am I involved in one of those? Yes you are. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks for remembering. We might be able to swing some bonus episodes in between now and then. So if you have any We're gonna get drunk and watch the movie. Right, that type of thing. But if you have any <laughs> other ideas about something you'd like us to talk about before we start reading The Sun Life, uh, let us know. And I think that's it for now. If you like our show or even just don't hate it, please take some time to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. You can follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Uh, if you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, like all of these people, you can uh, write into us with an email at contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com, and I will be sure to put your stuff in. Uh, before three or four or five months have passed. We obviously have to end with, and remember, everyone is special.
I think that that would be so wild, though. Like, you're just living your life and you get a kangaroo and you're like, what the fuck and you're like, what is the this? fuck is that? And like, you and the kid with the dragon are friends because you're like, we both got mythical beasts. <laughs> you get a pangolin and you're like, minus mythical yeah. too. <laughs> Try it again. Just because. Jesus, fuck. Sorry. You all right? <laughs> Did you spill something? I. <sighs> I have a lacrosse ball that I use for um Of course. Like lacrosse? Physical <laughs> physical therapy on my forearms. Oh, okay. Like that a, makes some like, sense. Why would you get anyway, a physical therapy was... ball? Sorry, this is this, this <laughs> we got very, very off topic. Now devolved into one hundred percent nationalist bickering. Yep. <laughs> There's, only no, there's, a matter there's, no, of time. there's no bickering here. There's no bickering. We are just agreeing on things which are correct. And then you guys <laughs> are sitting there being very quiet because... Because we're right. Uh, 